It always, it just never ceases to amaze me how there is just no just so happens in God's world. So going somewhere, Ron played an audio book that I didn't even know he had started. And it was a shepherd's look at Psalm 23, which I was delighted because I have not had the chance to read through that book. I've heard little snippets, but I've not read it all the way through. So as he turned it on, I got more and more excited because I told him, I need to read this to the ladies on Friday. This is exactly what we're learning through. So just amazing to me how God weaves those things. And it just so happened, it was directly on a chapter that just so happened related directly to what we're learning this morning. So um, I'm going to go ahead. A shepherd's look at Psalm 23. In every animal society, there is an established order of dominance or status within the group. In a pen full of chickens, it is referred to as the pecking order. With cattle, it is called the horning order. Among sheep, we speak of the butting order. Now, this is the shepherd talking, so it's going to refer to first person. It means the shepherd. The gentleman who wrote this has been a shepherd for years and years and years. Generally, an arrogant, cunning, and domineering old ewe will be the boss of any bunch of sheep. She maintains her position of prestige by budding and driving other ewes or lambs away from the best grazing or favorite bed grounds. Succeeding her in precise order, the other sheep all establish and maintain their exact position in the flock by using the same tactics of butting and thrusting at those below and around them. Because of this rivalry, tension and competition for status and self-assertion, there is friction in a flock. The sheep cannot lie down and rest in contentment. Always they must stand up and defend their rights and contest the challenge of the intruder. Hundreds and hundreds of times I have watched an austere old ewe walk up to a younger one, which might have been feeding contentedly or resting quietly in some sheltered spot. She would arch her neck, tilt her head, dilate her eyes, and approach the other with a stiff-legged gait. All of this was saying in unmistakable terms, a move over, out of my way, give ground or else. And if the other you did not immediately leap to her feet in self-defense, she would be butted unmercifully. Or if she did rise to to accept the challenge, one or two strong thrusts would soon send her scurrying for safety. This continuous conflict and jealousy within the flock can be a most detrimental thing. The sheep become edgy, tense, discontented, and restless. They lose weight and become irritable. I wish I lost weight when I became irritable. (laughs) But one point that always interested me very much was that whenever I came into view and my presence attracted their attention, the sheep quickly forgot their foolish rivalries and stopped their fighting. The shepherd's presence made all the difference in their behavior. This, to me, has always been a graphic picture of that struggle for status in human society. 
there is the eternal competition to keep up with the Joneses, or as it is now, keep up with the Joneses' kids. In any business firm, any office, any family, any community, any church, any human organization or group, be it large or small, the struggle for self-assertion and self-recognition goes on. Most of us fight to be top sheep. We butt and quarrel and compete to get ahead. And in the process, people are hurt. It is here that much jealousy arises. This is where petty peeves grow into horrible hate. It is where ill will and contempt come into being. The place where heated rivalry and deep discontent is born. It is here that discontent gradually grows into a covetous way of life where one has to forever be standing up for himself, for his rights, standing up just to get ahead of the crowd. In contrast to this, the picture in the psalm shows us God's people lying down in quiet contentment. But more important was the fact that it was the shepherd's presence that put an end to all rivalry. And in our human relationships, when we become acutely aware of being in the presence of Christ, our foolish, selfish snobbery and rivalry will end. It is the humble heart walking quietly and contentedly in the close and intimate companionship of Christ that is at rest, that can relax, simply glad to lay down and let the world go by. When my eyes are on my master, they are not on those around me. And this is the place of peace. So ladies, this morning, maybe you're saying, Rachel, where is this place of peace? How do I get there? How do I even encourage others to go to this place on our journey together? Our passage in James is going to give us both a challenge and then a contrast to help us understand true wisdom as we try to become peacemakers and to be in that place of peace ourselves. So if you will, turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We are going to be reading verses 13 through 18. So be looking for that challenge and then also his contrast as we read through it. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
So here, James is laying out for us both a challenge and a contrast. Where is this peace, this place of peace? Where, how do we get there? Where's the path to this? So James is going to, to challenge us first, and then he's also going to lay out for us, because sometimes it can be confusing. We'll have people saying, oh, this is the way to peace. That's the way to peace. Inner peace is the most important peace. And we go, oh, but that doesn't sound quite right. But what's wrong with this? So James is going to give us some telltale signs of wisdom that we need to be able to look at things around us and be able to identify us. Stephen Davey tells us that the theme of James's letter is spiritual maturity. If this letter were published as a standalone book, we could easily give it the title, Growing Up in God. While many New Testament authors, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasize what we believe, James clearly emphasizes how we behave. For James, the question is not, do you believe correctly? Rather, it is, are you behaving correctly? And nowhere is behaving correctly more at risk than with the use of our tongues. Up to this point in chapter 3, we have seen how James deals with the quality of our speech. Obviously, this morning we don't have time, but the whole beginning of chapter 3, he's been talking through the tongue. But now James begins to reveal the quality of our behavior. So number one on your outlines, we're going to look at what was the challenge. The challenge. And that challenge starts with, A, the question. So number one was the challenge. A is the question. And his question is, who among you is wise and understanding? Now, you may read that and go, well, Rach, I'm not, I'm not where I want to be. But, I mean, I have some crinkles. I've walked God's green earth for a while. I mean, I've learned some stuff, so I, I have some wisdom, some understanding. So all of us might tentatively slide half a hand up. Well, I have some. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not, I'm not as smart as everybody. I'm not as wise as everybody, but I have some. So he's asking, okay, who among you? is wise and understanding. So he also is laying out some things for us. Wise and understanding to us might sound redundant, but there's slightly different shadings in them. So number one, wise, that first part of that question. He says, who among you is wise? Now, wise in a practical sense is one who in action is governed by piety and integrity. Unfortunately, we don't normally go around using the word piety. So, of course, I went to our friend Noah Webster and asked him, all right, Noah, explain to me piety. So piety is the exercise of the love of God and his character and obedience to his will and devotion to his service. So all of that wrapped up together is piety. So the love of God and his character and that love pulls forth obedience to his will and devotion to his service. So that wisdom, we are governed by that love for God, his character. We know his character well enough to be able to imitate it 
by obeying his will and being devoted to his service. John Frame said, wisdom enables us to apply the knowledge of God to practical situations. So wisdom helps us see a thing, not only see a thing, but also apply. So this is somebody who knows God, who knows what God is like and is able to take that knowledge and say, okay, I have this in my life. This is who God is. This is his character. These are his commandments. So this is how we take that and apply it to everyday life. So that is somebody who is wise. The second item in James's question is, who, who among you is wise and understanding? So that word understanding behind it has more of a thought pattern of this is intelligence, experience, um, especially one of having the knowledge of an expert. I thought Stephen Davey was very helpful in thinking through, okay, wisdom and understanding, how do those two fit together? He said, understanding was used in James's generation for someone who was becoming a specialist in some field or practice. Here, it refers to one who is skilled at practicing wisdom. So wisdom is knowing and applying the truth while understanding is becoming skilled at practicing the truth. Do you see the difference? One is knowing and applying. The other is you've done it over and over and over again so that you're skilled. Just like a surgeon has to practice over and over and over again until he's a specialist in his field. He has so honed his knowledge of what to do in different circumstances that, circumstances that he becomes a specialist. We become specialized in taking wisdom, taking everyday life, and taking that wisdom and saying, okay, this is how we apply that. So James lays a question out for us, but he also explains if we are wise in understanding, then there will be B, the proof. The proof. Look down at verse 13. So he says, who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. So that phrase, let him show, means to give the evidence or proof of a thing. So he is sitting here saying, okay, if you're wise and understanding, that's good. I love that he asks a question because it almost makes you tell on yourself, like, yeah, I have some wisdom. I've got some understanding. And he's like, okay, good. Let's test that theory. Let's see if that thing is true. So what proof is he, is he talking about? The, the first proof of wisdom and understanding is number one, good behavior. Good behavior. Behavior there means your walk, your manner of life, your behavior or conduct. So Stephen Davies again said, this is almost like a turning back to return. It has an idea of returning again and again to the word of God. Your life is bound by obeying the word of God. So it's almost as though as you're walking along life's road, you're going back and saying, okay, okay, what should I do in this? Okay, this is what's good. Okay, 
this is how God displays himself. So therefore, this is how I can imitate that in this situation. Okay, now I go out. Good behavior. So not only it's that good behavior, but also his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. So the second proof of wisdom and understanding is number two, gentle and wise deeds. And again, let's remind ourselves, what did Chris, you're going to hear a lot of Chris's definitions this morning. I love this passage because it brought forward some of those words that, and ideas and topics that we've been moving through with the um, Beatitudes. But gentleness is the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to humbly and graciously exercise God's power in just the necessary measure to accomplish his purposes. So we're accomplishing God's purposes humbly and graciously with God's power in just the necessary measure. So these deeds that are being shown, they're gentle. That wisdom is gentle. There's not a running over people. There's not a, a demand of their own way, a staunch stiff-neckedness. There is gentleness there. So that is how James is starting out. Those deeds there. Now we have behavior. That's a whole manner of life. Deeds here is more the particular active things accomplished in that spirit-empowered, self-controlled strength. So not only it's the whole manner is good, but those particular actions he is taking throughout his life if you are wise and understanding, then your particular actions are also going to show forth that you're gentle and they're good and right. So James not only lays out the challenge to us about being wise and understanding, but he also lays out number two, the contrast. And this is where we're going to spend a bulk of our time this morning. He lays out the contrast. Look down at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So A, the first contrast, the first wisdom he's talking about is wisdom not from above. He'll, he'll go ahead and call it that in verse 15. But wisdom not from above. Here James describes the first kind of wisdom it might sound intelligent, it might sound logical, it might make sense, but what is number one, the proof of it? What's the proof of it? That phrase, if you have, he starts with, if you have bitter jealousy, if you have means to harbor or foster. If you have this in your heart, so this isn't just you struggle with this occasionally, this is a welcoming. You're harboring this. You are keeping this sheltered in your heart. You might be even trying to hide it in your heart, but eventually it will show and prove itself out. So what are these two proofs that he gives us? Number one, jealousy. Sorry, it's A on your outline. Jealousy. He says, but if you have Bitter jealousy, that word bitter there just means harsh. 
you ever bitten into something that's just bitter? There's a harshness to the flavoring where you just want to spit it back out. It's so bitter. And then that jealousy is an envious and contentious rivalry. rivalry. So there's just that envy in our heart, that rivalry, that struggling to be that top sheep. I want to be in control. I want to be the top. That word contentious, again, not one we go around saying every day. It means given to arguing or provoking argument. So either you're ready for a fight or you're ready to poke somebody else so you can get a fight. So, and of course, the contentious person, if you ask them if they're contentious, usually will say, I'm not contentious. They're wrong. I'm right. That's it. So they won't identify them necessarily, identify themselves necessarily as contentious. It's just like, well, if they would just see logic, reason, sense, this would all go okay. This would all go smoothly. I'm just laying out facts. I'm just, if you start a sentence with, I'm just, you might want to pause <laughs> when it talks about when you're thinking through an argument, or if he would just, if she would just, this would all be fine. So, um, and then in the, the phrase, in your heart, here James emphasizes where the outward behaviors flow from. Where is this bitter jealousy coming from? He's not merely demanding outward conformity, but showing that this is a heart problem. Our outward deeds will flow from what is in our own hearts. So, ladies, how are we when we're in the comfort of our own home? Are we bitterly jealous? When we're comfy and we don't mind letting our guard down, do you think you're wise and have understanding? Or at least, do you think you're wiser and have more understanding than your husband? James says, okay, let's look at your behavior. How is it when no one's watching? Do you have good behavior and deeds and gentleness of wisdom? Or are you always trying to win that latest debate between you and your husband? Because if he would just listen, he would understand that you're just trying to help him see the right way to go. Really? Or you just know you're right. You're going to prove it. Do we strive to make peace in our home? Or are we too busy trying to die on the hill of being right? Because, you know, we can't let him get the upper hand. Can't let him be right. Because then that would mean this, then this, then this, then this. It's just a snowball. We're not going there. I have to be right. I've got to win this one. So the word contentious made me think of Proverbs and the contentious woman. Now, I will be open and honest. I thought there was one verse about a contentious woman. Oh, no, no. No, no, no. So as we think through our own homes and applying this in our own homes, something that is helpful is Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her, own, her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Very sobering. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read to you the verses in Proverbs that talk about the contentious woman. 
Proverbs 19.13, the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Proverbs 21.9, it is better to live in the corner of a roof than a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21.19, it is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Proverbs 25.24, it is better to live in a corner of the roof than a house shared with a contentious woman. And Proverbs 27.15-16, through 16, a very fitting verse for this morning. Again, no just so happens in God's world. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Now, ladies, that's us. We can be the contentious woman if we are not careful. And part of that is that bitter jealousy within our own hearts. Why are we struggling with our husbands? Why are we fighting to be right all the time? Even simple things like which way to turn when you're at the stop sign? Which way to load the dishwasher? Which way to discipline the children? All the things. It, it doesn't even matter. I could keep going. We could go all day long. Which way you cut the grass? <laughs> For mercy on your soul, my Andrea. No, actually, mercy on my own soul. But it is one of those ladies, it is good for us to stop and think, is that me? Am I just tearing down my own home just to be right? Why? At the end of the day, what does that win me? Bitter jealousy? Selfish ambition? We're going to go there in a minute. Because really, what are we doing? When we debate with our husbands, we might even be right. There, there are two, there are many ways to load a dishwasher. We, of course, have really good reasons why we do it the way we do it, right? It's either efficiency, cleanliness, it gets it cleaner, whatever, whatever. Instead of saying, thank you, sweetheart, for loading the dishwasher, it's why didn't you put the spoons all together? They're just going to nest and nothing's going to get clean. Close the mouth. Pray. Don't say a word and say, thank you, sweetheart, for doing the dishes. It is one of those where, or again, questioning every turn he makes, or is he paying close enough attention to the road when he's the one driving? Don't be a backseat driver. It doesn't win any loveliness in your marriage. (laughs) So we'll learn later on an antidote to being a contentious wife. Also, um, since this is free, Since we're coming up to the holidays and thinking through the wise woman building up her home and the foolish woman tearing it down with her own hands, does it really matter what day you celebrate on? Do you know how many fights I hear of in families because mama's mad because she's not getting to celebrate when she wants to celebrate? So make sure that's not us. Is this really worth me losing the peace in my home and me not being a peacemaker and following God just because I got my way and I got to celebrate Christmas when I wanted to celebrate Christmas. 
No, we're celebrating the Prince of Peace. So why are we destroying our own homes by demanding our own way? So we chuckle, but you guys know you have families. And it does get, it does get frustrating sometimes because you've got, you know, multiple families who have multiple expectations and you're trying to fit everything in and the holiday ends up being instead of a joy it becomes a nightmare because you're trying to figure everything out don't just selfish ambition bitter jealousy oh they spend more time with them oh they always go to the other side of the family instead of my side of the family or if, if you're younger and you're not I'm, I'm speaking more from now I'm crinkled in adult children but if you are the one that is the children that are going to the parents' house, and you're like, why can't they just see I'm trying? Um, both sides need patience. We'll get to it. Both sides need the antidote that is coming soon. Hang on. So, but hold on to that thought. But with the holidays, don't tear it apart. Again, we're celebrating the Prince of Peace. That might be a good mantra for us as we move into the holidays. We're celebrating Thanksgiving, so grateful hearts, which is a great antidote. And then we're moving right into celebrating the Prince of Peace. I'm celebrating the Prince of Peace, so it doesn't matter if I get my way. I'm celebrating the Prince of Peace. So um, that just might be helpful as we move forward, keeping peace in our homes. And then this not only happens at home in our families, but also... It happens at church with our church families, right? We want our own way. We scheme to get our own way. We talk to others so that they can, you know, just see reason and see that we're right, so therefore it can be done the right way. Or we silently sulk and we become bitter when we don't get our own way instead of voicing those ideas or concerns to the proper people or authorities. That's the right way to handle it. You talk about it. But, but some of us, we sulk. We don't want to talk. We don't want to take the appropriate steps. Or we sulk and we get upset when nobody asks us our opinions. But people don't know you have opinions and ideas if you don't ever go to the proper people to tell them your opinions. Or we get sulky if they don't get followed. We express them, but maybe it doesn't work. And we get sad because it's either not happening fast enough or it's not done at all. We might push to have spheres of influence and get our voice heard instead of having our focus to be encouraging, loving one another, to be kind, always looking to serve simply for the sake of laying down our lives for the Savior, not so that we can be seen serving and moving up whatever ladder of success we think others are on, and we want to be higher than them. We want to be the witty blogger, or the, the highly thought of conference speaker, or the homeschool mom with experience that others gather around and hang on every word, or the successful businesswoman that everyone hushes in awe when she enters the room. It doesn't matter what it is. Every sphere of life our, we'll get there, our natural man just wants to grasp into, and I mean, the sheep with the butting, what a great image. Just we butt and we butt and we butt. Get out of my way. We may not say that. We know how to act. We know how to do it. 
But that bitter jealousy, that selfish ambition, we scheme. Oh, if I just talk to this person and this person and this person and help them to see reason, then they will see it my way and we can finally get something done, right? It's, it's amazing how it happens. So, but scripture shows us a better way. Um, we also sulk when we see the videos of hundreds of talented people online and, and we just want to stand up like they do, right? We have that bitter jealousy and we're watching unbelievers being talented and we just want that. But 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Or 2 Corinthians 5.9, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So in the church father Tertullian's time, it was said, oh, see how the Christians love each other. But Thomas Watson says, but now it may be said, see how the Christians snarl at one another. So instead of that love for each other, the world is seeing us snarling at each other as we try to climb our way to top. But as we just read in those verses, there's a different ambition, a different focus. We're not to be jealous. But closely related to that bitter jealousy, there is B, selfish ambition. So this is very, very different. This ambition is very different than the verses we just read. Look down at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. I loved Chris Reiser's quote. This one needs to go up the house somewhere. Selfishness declares, I will get what I want. And if I don't, I'll blame you. So so poignant. That's what I'm acting like when I'm demanding my own way. When I am having that, that debate with my husband about whatever it is today, I want what I want, and if I don't get it, it's your fault. Well, we wouldn't be having this debate if you would just listen, if you would just listen to reason, if you would just hear me out, if you just truly understood what I'm trying to get across to you, then this wouldn't be a problem. That selfish ambition, Hebert says in his commentary, the selfish ambition is a willingness to use unworthy and divisive means to promote one's own views or interests. And I found it very interesting. I was looking for a different quote about wisdom's goal, and this popped up. And I thought, what an interesting example of what this selfish ambition sounds like, except for it's a little bit coded has kind of a nice veneer. This is very much worldly wisdom. Listen and see if you can catch it. My ultimate goal is to be at peace with myself. Eliminate toxic feelings and elements and energies from my life. Unlearn negative and harmful practices and thought patterns. Stop checking for people that don't check for me. Create a space for myself that is nurturing for growth so that I may generate loving energy for myself and for others. 
nourish my spirit and balance my energies. I have big dreams and I deserve to live a life I love and let that love radiate. That whole thing. Now, ladies, this is, this is common speech out in the world today. This is what our world rejoices in and embraces and says, yes, that's it. Your ultimate goal is to be at peace with yourself. Oh, our world longs to have peace. They just don't want to go to God to get that peace. So they look within themselves. But can we not pick up some of those same thought patterns ourselves? I just want a life I love. I just want there to be peace. But we don't want to work and do the godly things it takes to get that peace. I just, I just want to nurture myself and grow. But we don't want to obey God's will in order to grow. That's hard work. That's really hard. I, I'm just too tired for that. I'm, I'm too weary. And ladies, it does get hard. When we have this bitter jealousy, when we have this selfish ambition, again, selfish ambition, where are we looking at? Self. So when there is a church event at church, do we encourage and serve or do we criticize and tear apart? That doesn't mean we don't have good ideas. That doesn't mean we don't go to the proper people to share those ideas. But are we talking to the right people? Are we talking to everybody else to get them to agree with us so that we feel affirmed and we feel like our viewpoint is the right viewpoint? We have to be so careful. Do we have inner turmoil because our opinion isn't sorted out? Anytime there's even as simple, and I do want, want to warn you, something as simple as construction. Construction is coming. You would be shocked how that causes internal turmoil within the church. It's just a building. God's blessed us with it. It's old. It's crazy. It's wonky, but I love our church. It just is what it is. We are the church. So now let's not let the building that our church meets in cause inner turmoil. But it's happened before. We've had people leave the church because of Little things that started, little opinions that weren't followed, things that, that honestly, gossip started, and that gossip started poisoning. It is so sad to watch people grumble and complain, but they will not go. They will not talk to the right people, and all it does is poison themselves. That's the sad part. They poison themselves, and then as they're grumbling and complaining, they're going around and spreading that poison to others. Can tear a church apart for a building. So I would love to just beg of you on the forefront. You might say, Rachel, that's such a little thing, but when you watch it happen before, and it can be other things. Ladies, we have an enemy that is alive and well and seeking to pull away the weak sheep and to attack, to, thank you, sweetheart. 
he will find whatever. Maybe this time it won't be the construction. Maybe we'll get through it just fine. Praise God, that would be wonderful. But it'll be something else. Be so very careful that we don't have our selfish ambition. Why are they doing it that way? Why aren't they doing it that way? And you find your little group that agrees with you and affirms you and affirms your opinion. Instead of going, no, this is Christ's church. We will follow the elders' leads. Maybe you have good questions. Believe you me, the elders love it when people come to them and share opinions, share ideas, ask their questions so that they have an opportunity to share their hearts with you. Come to business meetings. I know, I've been to them. They're not the most exciting thing in the world, but the information is vital so that you understand what's going on, how they're processing things, how we're moving forward. So, just as we're, we're thinking through things, you know, our, our, sometimes we think, they should have asked me. I would have told them a better way. And then we share with others and tear down the peace in our church over a wall color or room placement. Even if we're white, right, is it worth it to criticize our elders or leadership and tempt others to discontentment? Again, this doesn't mean we aren't helpful. It means we don't think highly of ourselves and our own opinions. And we're not easily offended when our way of thinking is not followed. We need to be careful of talking amongst ourselves and complaining when we are not willing to go to the proper people to talk to. Don't be a sheep that goes around butting other people to get them to do or think the way you want them to. Gathering a group around yourself. Constantly, we're pointing to Christ. We're pointing to the eternal. We're pointing to the living hope we've been talking about. So James moves on and see he gives the warning. The warning, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth, verse 14 says. That word arrogant means gloating over another on the ground of assumed superiority, the triumph of arrogant pride over others in the interactions of daily life. This is self-promotion. And does not our society scream off from the rooftop, self-promotion is good. You have to be self-assertive. You've got to get out there. You've got to gather people. You've got to make people listen to you. You are a voice. You need to be heard. And yet, what does scripture say? Do not be arrogant. Why? Because that so lies against the truth. Hebert says in his commentary, if you're going to be like that, if you're going to have bitter jealousy, if you're going to have selfish ambition, you ought at least to be honest and stop claiming to be inspired by God's heavenly wisdom. That is what that means. So lie against the truth. If you're going to be like that and that is going to be your manner, then the very least you could do, don't claim it's from God. Claim your own wisdom, but don't say that's from God if it's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So not only does he lay that out, but D, he lays out what is the source? The source. Look down at verse 15. 
This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Earthly there means we worry about what's on this ball of dirt. It's from here. It only worries about the here and now. This means wisdom might sound logical and true. That quote I read you from Pinterest, there were some elements of that that you could probably pull out and say, I mean, well, that's true. You do need to nurture yourself, but not in the way they were talking about. You need to let love radiate, but not in the way they were talking about. But it can sound logical and true, but its eyes are not on Christ and his glory, but on promoting themselves. That's earthly. God and his character is not the basis of this wisdom, and scripture is not its origin. It's from this dirt. Also, there's natural. 1 Corinthians 2.14 helps us understand what this is talking about. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So it's earthly, it's from this ball of dirt, it's natural, that natural man that craves his own way, craves its own self, self-promotion, and then also demonic. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So it's worth it for us to stop and say, is the wisdom that I think I have or is the teaching I'm listening to and I believe is wise, is it encouraging me to build up my church and build the unity of my local body of believers or is it proud and boastful? Is it trying to pull me away from the local body. Do you realize God has given us the local body to build up? You can't do the one another's listening to a podcast by yourself at home. This is where the one another's start. This is where unity in Christ starts. God gives us the local body to pour ourselves out to and to exercise our gifts. So is what I'm listening to, is it pulling me farther and farther away from the local body? Or is it pushing me towards, press in, love more, encourage more, serve more? If it's pulling away from the local body, you need to stop and think, should I be listening to this? Should I be thinking this? Do I have selfish ambition or bitter jealousy? Does the person I'm listening to, is there a wooing and a trying of gathering together either within the body or outside of the body? Are they trying to draw me away to the side and be like, don't listen to them, listen to me? Or is it a pushing together and pointing at Christ and declaring Christ's glory and all of us as one looking to Christ. Stephen David said, if your wisdom is demon-inspired, it leads you to exalt yourself, justify your sin, reject the cross, and trust in yourself. 
It leads away from repentance and away from Christ into self-sufficiency, self-promotion, self-centeredness, self-deception, short-sightedness, and spiritual blindness. No matter how smart, beautiful, modern, or clever it appears to be. So ladies, these are the things we need to be thinking through as we think of wisdom within ourselves and viewing things outside of ourselves. Is this wisdom from above? So what's the result of this wisdom? In verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So here, the natural outcome of this kind of wisdom is seen. It's not a unification and a glorying of Christ and a joy in the Lord. There's disorder in every evil thing. There's no urging or push into your local body. Everyone is shouting louder and louder to be heard and calling the flock to follow them. Again, instead of pointing to Christ, let's worship him. Let's follow him as one unit, laying our lives down for each other so that we look more and more like the image of Christ. So in contrast to the wisdom that is not from above, James shows us B, wisdom from above. So we've looked at that wisdom not from above. Let's spend some time on what does that look like from above. So number one, let's look at the characteristics. The characteristics. And we're going to work our write down the list he gives us there in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. You should have a lot of beans going off in your head of, that sounds familiar, that sounds familiar, that sounds familiar. So, um, which is one of the reasons I love this passage because I feel like James just brings forward those beatitudes in a very beautiful way. So pure, Chris Reiser once again gave us a great definition. The single-minded, sincere devotion to God flowing from a heart that has been washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit, which results in the passionate practice of holiness. 1 John 3, 3, we looked at it last week. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So that's that imitation of Christ himself, that purity. We are to be pure of heart. We're not to have that bitter jealousy, that selfish ambition in our hearts. We're to be a pure of heart here. Then he says, peaceable. Now, one who is a peacemaker, Chris says, is one who delights in exerting maximum effort to bring a harmonious relationship. But ladies, notice the word order. Godly wisdom does not sacrifice holiness and purity in order to have peace. Godly wisdom stands against sin, but with a desire for peace. The end goal is peace. A peacemaker wants to bring peace with God and peace with our brothers and sisters, that man-to-man. So it's first pure, then it's peaceable, then it's gentle. This word gentle has behind it a considerate, 
having a respect for the feelings of others. So you're speaking to others, but you have that respect for their feelings. Brian Borgman, when addressing this verse, said, are we living in such a way that the only feelings we care about are our own? We should consider, how is this going to affect that person, and how is this going to affect that person's heart? Just like we were talking about the contentious wife. If we were to stop ourselves and say, how is this debate going to affect my husband's heart? I think that would change immediately how we were moving through that debate, argument, whatever you want to call it. How is this going to make my husband look more like Christ? I think that would change what comes out of our mouths and our attitudes and our tones. Also there, the next one is reasonable. Reasonable is a willingness to yield to others easily persuaded with the implication of being open to reason or willing to listen. Now, this is not being gullible or pliable, you know, being washed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. This is a, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to listen and understand what you're trying to tell me for the purpose of being united and moving forward in a peaceful manner. So again, this reasonable, I think if we could get a hold of this, if we could just become reasonable women, we will never be called the contentious woman. Listening to what others have to say, especially when we think we're right. Again, who among you is wise and understanding? But I just understand this better. You might but are you being reasonable? And we kind of use that in a little bit different, like, are you logical? Are you reasonable? But this is more, okay, I'm, I'm listening to you to see where I can yield and I can agree and I can be united with you as we move forward. Brian Borgman again says, of course we come out of the womb with a willingness to yield, don't we? No, we actually come out of the womb ready for combat to make sure we get our way. I mean, what is our child's first act as they come out of the womb? Scream, I don't like this, put me back. So we come out just ready to fight for what we want. So as we have pure hearts, as we talk through different and issues are we explaining things gently being quick to be reasonable quick to yield quick to be peaceful making sure our hearts have pure motives imitating christ are we also full of mercy and good fruits this seems to be indirect contrast to the disorder and every evil thing in verse 16 so this is the direct flip so instead of disorder and every evil thing that's full, abounding in mercy and good fruits, mercy, Chris says, is the expression of love which causes us to have compassion on and actively help those who are suffering and afflicted, either due to their own sin or the sinfulness of the Lord in which we all live. 
So as we're moving forward, do we have this in abundance? For we are looking to spread love, compassion actively on those who are suffering. Again, if we take our husband um, into consideration, do we stand there with our hands there? I told you. I told you. If you just want to listen to me because I understood what was going on, that wouldn't have happened. Or do we come alongside? Do we give a hug? Do we say, honey, how can I help? How can I support you right now? How can I make this easier for you as we walk through this and stay united? Also, unwavering there. Next characteristic means non-divisive, not tending to cause factions or divisions within a group. It's consistent. It's unwavering. This doesn't mean stubbornness. It means we are settled in what we believe. We are settled in our walk, in our conversations, in our pattern of life. We are unwavering. We're not tossed about. No nailing jello to the wall when you're trying to talk to this person. They're just, what you see is what you get. And they're without hypocrisy. So they're free from that pretense. They're sincere. Hypocrisy, a lot of times in scripture, it's one who wears a mask. How many of us are coming without hypocrisy as we're talking to people? Oh, well, if I just shade it this way, I can get them to do what I want. If I just be this way around them, then they'll think about me what I want them to think about me. So James not only gives us the characteristics of wisdom from above, but also, number two, he gives us the result. The result, look down at verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Righteousness there is the righteousness in living and lifestyle. And two, this verse is a direct reference to Matthew 5, 9. The blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hebert says, motivated by this heavenly wisdom, they aim at reconciling quarrels and bringing men into peaceful relations with each other as brothers. In so doing, they themselves Share in the blessings of the peace and fellowship that they promote. So ladies, peace is the ultimate goal of wisdom from above. Whether that's we are sharing how the world around us can be at peace with their heavenly father. Or whether that's being a good testimony by staying united, by striving for unity, by striving for helping others in our fellowship be united, whatever the case may be. Thomas Watson tells us, we should not as vultures prey upon one another, but pray for one another. Pray that God will quench the fire of contention and kindle the fire of compassion in our hearts one to another. All good Christians ought to be peacemakers. They should not only be peaceable themselves, but make others at peace. That fruit, as in the body, when a joint is disconnected, we set it again. When a garment is ripped, we sew it together again. When others are ripped apart in their affections, 
We should, with a spirit of gentleness, sew them together again. If we had this excellent skill, we might glue and unite. I confess, it is often a thankless office to go about reconciling differences, but it brings a blessing from God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that as women of your church, that we would not be contentious, that we would not have bitter jealousies or envies or striving, that we would not have that selfish ambition, but that we would be united around bringing your name glory, that our good deeds here on earth would bring glory to our Heavenly Father that the world around us would see such a great difference in our love for each other, that we would strive to be at peace with one another and that we would strive to be peacemakers, that we with great joy might come forth as gold. Lord, please we be gentleness in our hearts that we would constantly be striving to look and see if we are using wisdom that is from you. And Lord, we do ask you for that wisdom, as James says in the first chapter, that you would pour out your wisdom to us that we so desperately need for every day. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen.